Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, I'm recording this intro in the immediate aftermath of now two mass shootings. The one in El Paso, and it appears there was one in Dayton a few hours ago. Needless to say, social media is now a cesspool. I guess there are a few things... I could say about this. I actually I wrote a piece on my blog when I used to blog rather than podcast about six years ago in response to some jihadist violence. And um, it really is the clearest articulation of what I have to say at moments like this. The conversation about atrocities of this kind, mass shootings, is generally so confused. And it's so frustrating to see people talking past one another for political or otherwise emotional reasons that, um, I don't know, it just, I think I'll, I'll read the first part of this blog post just to um, put my argument in view in the clearest form and then maybe say a few things relevant to the current moment. This comes from a post titled No Ordinary Violence, which was published October 11th, 2013. A young man enters a public place, a school, a shopping mall, an airport, carrying a small arsenal. He begins killing people at random. He has no demands, and no one is spared. Eventually, the police arrive, and after an excruciating delay as they marshal their forces, the young man is brought down, or arrested. This has happened many times, and it will happen again. After each of these crimes, we lose our innocence, but then innocence magically returns. In the aftermath of horror, we seem to learn nothing of value. Indeed, many of us remain committed to denying the one thing of value that is there to be learned. After the Boston Marathon bombing, a journalist asked me, why is it always angry young men who do these terrible things? She then sought to connect the behavior of the Sarnayev brothers, with that of Jared Loeffner, James Holmes, and Adam Lanza. Like many people, she believed that similar actions must have similar causes. But there are many sources of human evil, and if we want to protect ourselves and our societies, we must understand this. To that end, we should differentiate at least four types of violent actor. And now this is a sidebar. There may be one new subtype here that I'll, I'll add. But here's the first. One. Those who are suffering from some form of mental illness that causes them to think and act irrationally. Given access to guns or explosives, these people may harm others for reasons that wouldn't make a bit of sense even if they could be articulated. We may never hear Jared Loeffner and James Holmes give accounts of their crimes, and we do not know what drove Adam Lanza to shoot his mother in the face and then slaughter dozens of children. But these mass murderers appear to be perfect examples of this first type. Aaron Alexis, the Navy Yard shooter, is yet another. What provoked him? He repeatedly complained that he was being bombarded with, quote, ultra-low-frequency electromagnetic waves. Apparently, he thought that killing people at random would offer some relief. It seems there's little to understand about the experiences of these men, or about their beliefs, except as symptoms of underlying mental illness. Two, this is the second type, prototypically evil psychopaths. These people are not delusional. They are malignantly selfish, ruthless, and prone to violence. 
Our maximum security prisons are full of such men. Given half a chance and half a reason, psychopaths will harm others, because that is what psychopaths do. It is worth observing that these first two types trouble us for reasons that have nothing to do with culture, ideology, or any other social variable. Of course, it matters if a psychotic or psychopath happens to be the head of a nation or otherwise has power and influence. That is what is so abhorrent about North Korea. The child king is mad or simply evil, and he's building a nuclear arsenal while millions starve. But even here, there is very little to be learned about what we, the billions of relatively normal human beings struggling to maintain open societies, are doing wrong. We didn't create Jared Loeffner, apart from making it too easy for him to get a gun. And we didn't create Kim Jong-il, apart from making it too easy for him to get nuclear bombs. Again, this was written six years ago. Given access to powerful weapons, such people will pose a threat no matter how rational, tolerant, or circumspect we become. And I guess I would add another descriptor here. There are people, it seems, who fall into one of these two categories, who are living in an online culture of trolling now where killing people and writing semi-bogus or entirely bogus manifestos merely designed to confuse the media is becoming a new phenomenon, right? These are people who are not moved by a sincere ideology. They're just, quote, shitposting. The behavior of trolling on websites like 4chan and 8chan has been exported to the real world in the form of mass murder designed as a troll. And uh, to some degree, I believe the Christ Church shooting in the mosque had this form, right? It's still not entirely clear what happened there. So this is a kind of derangement that social media has introduced into our lives, where some people are willing to commit murder and even mass murder simply to enjoy the spectacle it creates online. Again, they're either crazy or evil or both. But in certain cases, the reasons for their behavior are not as they appear, right? And the media seems to get very confused about this. Okay, the third type here. Normal men and women who harm others while believing that they're doing the right thing or while neglecting to notice the consequences of their actions. These people are not insane, and they're not necessarily bad. They're just part of a system in which the negative consequences of ordinary selfishness and fear can become horribly magnified. Think of a soldier fighting in a war that may be ill-conceived or even unjust, but who has no rational alternative but to defend himself and his friends. Think of a boy growing up in the inner city who joins a gang for protection only to perpetuate the very cycle of violence that makes gang membership a necessity. Or think of a CEO whose short-term interests motivate him to put innocent lives, the environment, or the economy itself in peril. Most of these people aren't monsters. However, they can easily create suffering for others that only a monster would bring about by design. This is the true banality of evil, whatever Hannah Arendt actually meant by that phrase. But it is worth remembering that not all evil is banal. 4. Normal men and women who are motivated by ideology to waste their lives and the lives of others in extraordinary ways. Some of these belief systems are merely political or otherwise secular, in that their aim is to bring about specific changes in this world. But the worst of these doctrines are religious, 
whether or not they are attached to a mainstream religion, in that they are informed by ideas about otherworldly rewards and punishments, prophecies, magic, and so forth, which are especially conducive to fanaticism and self-sacrifice. Of course, a person can inhabit more than one of the above categories at once, and thus have his antisocial behavior overdetermined. There must be someone, somewhere, who is simultaneously psychotic and psychopathic, part of a corrupt system, and devoted to a dangerous, transcendent cause. But many examples of each of these types exist in their pure forms. For instance, in recent weeks, a spate of especially appalling jihadist attacks occurred, one in a shopping mall in Nairobi, where non-Muslims appear to have been systematically tortured before being murdered, one on a church in Peshawar, and one on a school playground in Baghdad, targeting children. Whenever I point out the role that religious ideology plays in atrocities of this kind, specifically the Islamic doctrines related to jihad, martyrdom, apostasy, and so forth, I am met with some version of the following. Quote, Bad people will always do these things. Religion is nothing more than a pretext. This is an increasingly dangerous misconception to have about human violence. Here is my pick for the most terrifying and depressing phenomenon on earth. A smart, capable, compassionate, and honorable person grows infected with ludicrous ideas about a holy book and a waiting paradise, and then becomes capable of murdering innocent people, even children, while in a state of religious ecstasy. Needless to say, this problem is rendered all the more terrifying and depressing because so many of us deny that it even exists. Okay, well, I think I'll stop there. Again, I wrote this six years ago in the aftermath of some jihadist attacks, and now I'm reading it to you in the aftermath of some mass shootings in the United States, which attest at least to the problem of gun violence here, as well as to our failure to make it difficult for bad people, crazy people, dangerous people to get access to guns. And it might, in fact, attest to a rise of white supremacist violence. At the time I'm recording this, it's not yet clear what's what here. But whatever's true of El Paso and Dayton, two things are absolutely clear. One is that, again, we need some rational gun control in the U.S. And I've written about guns. My views on guns and gun control are hard enough to parse that they resist easy summary. You can listen to the podcast or read the associated essay titled The Riddle of the Gun. I can sound very pro-gun for part of that, but the punchline you should not lose sight of is that the regulations I recommend on guns in the U.S. are more stringent than anyone on the left is calling for. So don't lose sight of that if you freak out over the other parts of that essay that sound like they were written by the NRA an organization which I hope will one day be destroyed. The short form of this point is that we license people to drive cars, we license them even more stringently to fly airplanes, and I think getting a license to own a firearm should be like getting a pilot's license. It shouldn't be easy, and if you're mentally ill or prone to suicidal depression, it should be very difficult to get your hands on a gun. But with 300 million guns already in existence in the U.S., this is a, a hard thing to bring about, not to mention the political religion around gun ownership enshrined in the Second Amendment. Anyway, we need a conversation and research 
and political change around the epidemiology of gun violence. It's insane that we suffer this in the U.S. to this degree. It's also true that we should keep some perspective. In the hours where I think it's now 38 people have died in two mass shootings in the U.S., more people have died from ordinary shootings and by suicide and even by medical errors in hospitals, right? So we should keep some proportion here. And finally, whatever is the case with these specific shooters, whether or not they're both people of the fourth type I describe in this essay, people who are motivated, in this case, by the lunatic ideology of white nationalism, and that may yet prove to be the case, it is obviously a bad thing that we have a president who utterly fails to be clearly and consistently opposed to these ideas. Yes, you can find him in the aftermath of Charlottesville saying one measly thing against white supremacy. But to say that he has been ambiguous on this issue is an understatement. Right? To say that he has given comfort to racists is an understatement. He completely lacks a decent ethical political response to these trends. I'm not a fan of dog whistle theory. I don't actually think he's dog whistling in his statements to white supremacists. I think he's just an ordinary Archie Bunker style racist who doesn't care about these issues and doesn't want to alienate anyone in his base. And I think the people who are endlessly talking about dog whistles are doing much more harm than good in our political discourse. Not everything is a dog whistle. In fact, almost nothing is a dog whistle. I'm not saying the phenomenon doesn't exist, but generally racists just tell you what they think. And when they talk to other racists, they're explicit about their racism. And it really does matter that the left's allegations against Trump and his supporters are so poorly targeted. You know, when he tells Ilan Omar to go back to where she came from, on the left, that is proof positive of racism. Again, I have no doubt that Donald Trump is actually a racist, but that's a bad example of racism. It can be read in other ways. And to think that it's a dog whistle to neo-Nazis is just an act of leftist clairvoyance that strikes me as totally counterproductive. To remind you how crazy this has all become, there was a Washington Post opinion editor who claimed that Nancy Pelosi was dog whistling to racists when she criticized AOC and Ilan Omar and the rest of the so-called squad. Nancy Pelosi? The dog whistle meme is going to prove politically suicidal on the left. We have to be precise, even when attacking racists. So whatever turns out to be true in this case, whether either one of these mass shootings is a clear example of white nationalist terrorism, the problem with Trump is not that he is a clear supporter of white nationalist terrorism, or even white nationalism. The problem is he is an obscenely amoral president who can't be counted upon to say anything beyond what he imagines is narrowly self-serving politically and financially. To use a great word which is now much overused, this is the U.S. presidency reduced 
to a grift. And it's awful, but it is not always precisely awful in the ways that are alleged on the left. And again, every error matters. We are guaranteed to have Trump for four more years if the Democrats can't get their house in order. So my political concern here is that this not get overplayed and overspun. It's totally possible that one of these shooters is mentally ill. And if this still gets talked about as white nationalist terrorism, rather than a symptom of mental illness, that is going to be a political problem. And no, this is not a double standard. There are acts of violence perpetrated by Muslims that are not examples of jihadism, much less jihadist terrorism. Sometimes people really are violent for other reasons, as I sought to make clear in this essay. However, it is yet another very dark moment, and this has all been horrible news, but uh, I will leave it there. And now for today's podcast. Okay, well, in this episode of the podcast, I speak with Judea Pearl. Judea is a professor of computer science at UCLA. He's the author of three highly influential scholarly books. Uh, he's also the winner of the Alan Turing Award, often considered the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for computer science. He's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. He's one of the first 10 inductees into the IEEE Intelligence Systems Hall of Fame. He's received numerous awards and honorary doctorates, including the Rummelhart Prize, the Benjamin Franklin Medal, and the Lakatos Award at the London School of Economics. And uh, he's also the founder and president of the Daniel Pearl Foundation. And that is because he's the father of Daniel Pearl, who was the, I believe, the first journalist killed by Al-Qaeda at least the first that came to the attention of everyone in the aftermath of September 11th. Anyway, I mentioned this at the beginning because it would have been awkward to have just ignored it, but as you'll hear, I didn't have the heart to, um, to make Judea's experience uh, there a topic of conversation. So I opened that door only to close it, and then we just go on to have a, a fairly highbrow conversation about how science has generally failed to understand causation. We talk about the different levels of causal inference, counterfactuals, the foundations of knowledge, the nature of possibility, the illusion of free will, artificial intelligence, the nature of consciousness, and other topics. Anyway, at one point, I get confused about what we're talking about. <laughs> so it's, it's a bit of a nerd fest. But I really enjoyed it, and as you'll hear, Judea is a dear person, and it was a great privilege to meet him. So now, without further delay, I bring you Judea Pearl. I am here with Judea Pearl. Judea, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Sam. It's great to be here. Yeah, so we have, um, we've been circling this podcast for quite some time. It's just taken a while to uh, actually get together, and we have many areas of overlapping interest, so I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you about your work. I was prepared, as I said offline, to just talk about your academic work, and, and we'll, we'll get deep into that, but 
given my background as a critic of Islam and as a warrior about the link between specific religious ideas and and specific forms of violence, it's awkward for me to bring it up, but it's, it's awkward for me to ignore it as well. Danny Pearl was your son, who was, I believe, the first, at least first most visible person murdered, journalist murdered. First journalist. Yeah, after uh, 2001. So I just, I wanted to kind of just mention that at the outset, we can talk about it or not, if, as you like. We should talk about this topic separately, so we can separate the two discussions. Okay, okay. I don't feel the strange talking about it. I get used to talk about it. But I think for in terms of listeners' interest, some people have interest in the technical part and some have in the ideological part. Right, so right. It's good to separate the two. Okay, well, let's, let's dive into your work and, and then see what happens because your work is fascinating. So how would you describe what, you, what your intellectual focus has been in your career? Recently, it has been the mathematization of uh, cause and effect. Let's uh, put it very, very concisely and precisely. But there's a direct connection to artificial intelligence that oh, we'll yeah, talk about? Oh, yeah, if we want uh, robots to behave, behave like us, to communicate with us in our language, we have to equip them with the ability to communicate in terms of cause and effect. This is our language. If if they act stupidly without knowing the difference between correlation and causation, they will not be able to supply us answers to questions that we are, that are burning for us. Even simple questions like, why did the milk spill? Because I pushed it or because I was irritated or things of that sort. You want a good answer, a good explanation, so we can communicate. So you just mentioned this this opposition between, between correlation and causation. Yes, yes. And this, been... this is a phrase that will be familiar to many people. I think many people will be surprised that it has impeded scientific understanding to the degree that it has. I mean, you, you make a very strong case that science has more or less ignored causation, and yet I think in the popular understanding, science is all about finding the causes of a phenomenon. Correct. And so maybe we can speak for a few minutes about how statistics has rendered us unable to speak about causes historically. It's not statistics, it's science in general. Yeah. And you see, we learn physics. Every high school kid can solve uh, physics homework. And uh, if you look at the physics homework, it's, uh, you have... Boundary condition, condition, you have the equation of motions and find out uh, what's going to happen or even what's going to happen if you intervene and you change the spring length to double its previous value. Hmm. It's a causal question right. and every child can do that. Okay? But when you're trying to transfer this knowledge to a computer, to a robot, then you, a, a robot is facing a a clash here. Uh, the equation of physics are symmetric, which means that x causes y to the same degree as y causes x, which means that the movement of the barometer depends on the pressure, in the same way that the pressure depends on the 
movement of the barometer. Right. So when the robot comes in and look at the equation and say, hmm, let me change the weather tomorrow by moving this barometer a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what would prevent the robot from doing that? Yes, it's the same thing that prevents the uh, high school kids from not giving the same answer. Right. Yeah, but what the high school kids had, the notion of cause-effect. So the high school kids filters the equations in his or her mind before giving you the answer. And mm. that is a kind of filtering that we need to do here to introduce the asymmetry between cause and effect and do it mathematically because the robot doesn't understand the uh, hand-waving. Yeah. The robots must understand equations. So we need an algebra which is asymmetric to capture the asymmetry in nature. Right, so it's asymmetric with respect to influence. influence. T- time is usually the signature of influence. Correct, well, but, but it's not, not only the time. Yeah. It's not only the time. Yeah. We can show many cases in which the temporal direction, temporal order is different, and still X causes Y, and Y doesn't cause X. Right. It's very simple. I mean, you don't, you don't actually need teleology for no, that. Yeah, I'll you give you an have, example. Yeah. The, uh, the rooster crow mm-hmm. precedes the sunrise, and, right. and no one will say that the Rooster crow causes the sunrise. It's highly correlated too. Yeah, and so the the, ro- the, the rooster uh, crow appears to be a cause if, if time were your only signature. If yeah. the time is the only thing, yeah. right? It's not sufficient. So you talk about three levels of causation, mm-hmm. and maybe back up for a second and do a little more history of ideas. So uh, David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, has been very influential here in alleging that at least in one place in his work, that we never, we have no direct knowledge of causes ever. All we have is the conjunction or the, or the correlation, the coincidence of two events. And when you know, event B reliably follows event A, we impute causation where, in fact, there's no other knowledge ever gained there. And you know, I've always felt that that's almost a kind of semantic game which ignores some background intuitions we have that reach deeper into the way the world is than just mere B following A. First, it's ignore experiments. Mm. And Galileo lived before Hume. Right. So I'm surprised that Hume did not pay attention to Galileo. Although Galileo didn't make it explicit that uh, with experiments we get additional knowledge that you cannot get by passive observation. But Hume... puts too much emphasis on regularity, which was criticized by many other people. But then Hume changed his mind. Yeah. Uh, between his essay and the, and the treatise on human nature. Mm-hmm. And he, after I think seven or nine years, he, he said, in other words, and then he, he brought up a counterfactual definition of causation. Right. Had the object been different, the results would have... I, I don't have the exact phrasing. I have it in my book. Mm-hmm. That he changed from regularity to counterfactual. Had the object been different, then the, res, the outcome would be different. And even put the words in other words between them, as if they, are, they were the same. Right. But they are totally different. The first one is... A statistical regularity, which sits on the lowest level of the ladder, and the 
counterfactual is a top layer, the third layer. Yeah, so let's talk about the three layers. You, ha- you describe them at one point as seeing, doing, and imagining. Right. So uh, seeing is this, uh, well, I'll, I'll let you describe it. What, what is seeing? Uh, seeing is you are sitting there like an astronomer, passively observing phenomena with your hand tied behind your back, and you are um, talking about how your belief changes with additional observation. That's statistics. If you see some, if you see another piece of evidence, you change your belief. Whether you see symptoms and you change your belief about disease, you see a disease and you have expectation about symptoms. And so this is what uh, statistics is all about. Right, and and so that's the domain of mere correlation the and, mere and correlation. Humean, humean juxtaposition. Correct. At least the first human is first mood. Yeah, and that, by the way, is the domain of machine learning today. Right, care fitting. Yeah. yeah. Under noise, of course. Right. So that has been the dominant theology. Maybe, I mean, we're, we're going to head toward AI for a second, but maybe we should, should elaborate on that just for a stretch of, of 30 seconds. Machine learning takes in an immense amount of data and finds correlations which prove useful as, as long as we give it information as to what constitutes success. So it's like take a, a facial recognition task. What's an you know, example? And there's just, there's that mere correlation combined with sufficient computational power can prove very useful. Very it's just, useful. It's just not, it's just... Amazingly useful. Yeah. It's just <laughs> obviously not the basis of, of general intelligence of the sort that we are, we'll, we'll later talk about. Yeah. It is uh, debatable whether yeah. it is sufficient for right. general in- intelligence. Seems or not. unlikely, yeah. But my opinion is not, because yeah. I've seen mathematically that there are barriers that you cannot cross. Right. Okay, so we'll get to AI in a second and, and the robots that may or may not kill us. So, seeing, then there's doing. What is doing? Uh, doing is running an experiment. Mm. Okay. I'm. I'm wondering whether cancer, uh, whether smoking causes cancer. So I conduct experiment. It's as old as uh, Daniel in the uh, lion den. Okay, in the book of Daniel, you have a first experiment where uh, Daniel and his fellows uh, Israelites who were exiled refused to eat the food. It wasn't kosher, mm-hmm. and the king Nebuchadnezzar commanded them to eat the king's food because it was uh, much healthier and he depended on their talents to run the empire. <laughs> right. So Daniel p- proposed an experiment. Okay, take a few of us, give them vegetarian food and take the other groups and give them the king's food and see who is going to be mm-hmm. more uh, health- healthier looking. And that was the first experiment that we know of. Okay? Almost controlled, almost randomized. Yeah, yeah, I don't know which the control is there, but yeah. Well, take a group. Yes. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let's say you, you split the group into two parts. One of them is control, the other one is right. treatment, they call them. And um, you see the difference in the outcome. Right? It's an experiment, but of course, this was invented only in the 1930s. The idea of randomized experiments. A randomized controlled experiment in the 1930s, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, but we have been dealing with cause and effect much before that, right? Sure. Even from the time of one, Daniel. One hopes. How yeah. did we manage? 
Well, the child manages by conducting a playful manipulation in the world. The child uh, finds out that moving one ball causes the other one ball to move. Playing with one toy makes a noise, and the other one doesn't. So it's called playful manipulation. And that's, I believe, where we get most of our uh, knowledge about cause and effect in the world. Yeah, yeah, you push the world and something happens. With your own muscles. Yeah. Like, like Galileo <laughs> dropped the two objects from the Tower of Pisa and looked at them with his own eyes. Right. That was essential. So the third level is imagining. A third one is imagining, yeah. Some people do not see so the... You, huh? you can sit back if you want. I can just swing this closer. No, no, no. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, imagining is looking at your theory of the world and manipulating it in your mind. I start talking about imagining by showing the first uh, sculpture that described um, impossible objects. It was a lion head connected to human body. Okay. That was the first figurine, ivory figurines discovered from 32,000 years ago in a cave in Germany. The first object, artifact, they describe an impossible object. And how was that created? Well, the artist, in his or her mind, probably was his, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> imagined taking apart the human body, sever it, and putting on a lion head. Imagining it in your mind first and then put it in the ivory. Okay? Right. And that was the key. Okay? You can manipulate things in your mind before doing it in the physical world. And that is a terrific idea because that creates, according to Harari, a market of promises. Hmm. Okay? Yeah, you, you, you've all know Harari. Yeah, we, we've, uh, he's been on the podcast. And, uh, yeah. Do you know yeah. him? He's, he's very interesting. He's a, uh, no, I haven't met him personally. Yeah. We communicated in one message. <laughs> uh-huh. you, you guys should get together. So imagining is the domain of counterfactuals, and, and counterfactuals are a very important part of this story. It's essential for science. How would you define a counterfactual? It's um, figuring out an outcome that would have prevailed had a certain observation not taken place. Had Hillary won the election, had Cleopatra nose been longer than it was really, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Had Julius Caesar not crossed the Rubicon? Don't laugh, because that's how historians communicate. Right. Okay? (laughs) And they understand each other, and they form a consensus. So they can communicate, had Oswald not killed Kennedy, how would uh, American politics develop? When would have we pulled out of Vietnam and things of that sort? And they can communicate that way, despite the fact that Oswald did kill, kill Kennedy. Okay? Right. How can we form a consensus about things that um, are conflicting with the real trajectory of history. So it's, it's a discussion of what might have been. Might have been. And it's, a, it's anything that falls into the bin of, had the world been different, what could we say then? Correct. Right? If I hadn't crossed the street at precisely that moment, 
how would my life be different? And, and with that comes all the ethics. You yeah. should have known better. Great, yeah. So that this is, this is, it's such a, it, it can sound like a very dry export from the ivory tower, this notion of counterfactuals, but it underpins so much of what we care about. And I, I think we'll, we'll get into that. I mean, so for, there's another connection for me to the foundation of knowledge. I mean, what, what does real knowledge consist in? It's not enough to be right by accident. Right, so you can't like if you know if I look at my watch, and it's it's actually broken, but it ha- happens to show the correct time at this moment. It's wrong to say that I am in in knowledge of what time it is. I, I you know because a minute later, I, you know, I will re- will reveal that my methodology is such that it's not delivering me actual knowledge about the world. So you need to be able to ask, and this is a, this is a problem I I always get into with religious people when I you know when I criticize religion. I criticize it for this. When you ask yourself, I would invite any any believer to ask this question of themselves now, would you believe in God if God didn't exist? Right? <laughs> Do you stand in such relation to the truth of his existence such that you would not form a false belief that he exists? Is your belief in God the result of being in some contact with reality such that if God didn't exist, you wouldn't believe He exists. And I, th- I think you know any look at the the history or, and psychology of religion demonstrates that in almost every case, apart from the the mystics who have some vision of God that you know may in fact be a vision of God, you know who who are we to judge? Believers routinely violate this principle because the, the truth is they inherit these doctrines from previous generations that have merely asserted that certain books were dictated by the creator of the universe, and there's no, no more burden of evidence than that, and there's no more reality testing or updating of beliefs generation after generation. It's, there's still the mere assertion that these ancient books are the perfect record of God's existence. Well, you are facing now a specimen of a person who uh, answers your description. I don't believe in God. Actually, I know that God doesn't exist. Okay, you did me one better. Believe, and yeah. I still believe in him. Okay, well, that, that's that's going to get complicated. <laughs> hey, why? Okay. okay, well, so, all right, so I'm, I'm reluctant to take a full detour here, but it's, it's, it's too interesting. So, okay, so what do you mean? What do you mean? God and religion are just poetry. Okay, well, that's... So I'm using certain metaphors. Sure which are very helpful due to my cognition. I'm using them to communicate with you, with my children, and I say, yeah, God will punish you if you, if you talk right. like that. <laughs> Why not? Uh, um, which means, uh, look, to be more scientific about it, the, most of our reasoning works around metaphors, mm. similarities. And the deepest metaphors that we have are the metaphors of family relations. We are born to mother and father. We are, our perception system is so attuned to whether our mother frowns or smiles. Yeah. It's, it's the first thing that we, we, we learn. You grow up and you find out that um, the world is not only mother and fathers. It has stars and it has other things. So you create a metaphor, because I understand mother and father. Okay? I don't understand this movement of the stars. So I, 
immediately come out with the conclusion that there is some force there, like my father, that moves the stars around, and like my father, teaches me things and punishes me things. Uh, sometimes it's very natural. So that's the basics of our cognition. So I do not fight it. I use it. But I remember that it's only, only a poetry. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, then you have a, you have a, you're in a parish of, with a very few members at the moment. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that's a, uh, a legitimate use of, of poetry and literature, certainly. <laughs> but it's not what most people most of the time mean by God, <laughs> as, as you know. This is just to say that thinking about what might have been different at the level of belief. So I, I believe certain things about the world, and if I believe I'm in touch with the world, I believe that, for instance, I'm you know, staring at a microphone that I put here. I believe there's a microphone in front of me on the desk. Implicit in that belief, to say that that really is my propositional attitude, that there's a microphone on the desk, is the assertion that if there weren't a microphone on the desk, I wouldn't think there was one. Right. So there is a counterfactual built into just the assertion that this is a microphone, whether anyone ever thinks about it. But as you point out, an understanding of counterfactuals or, or an ability to model them is the necessary ingredient to understanding what in fact is a cause as opposed to a merely a, an event that happens to precede some other event in, in time or be associated with it, a mere correlation. It's necessary to um, believe in actual cause. By right. actual, is different than, uh, uh, than average cause. See, smoking right. is, on the average, smoking is harmful to your health, on the average. But some people yeah. could, be, could benefit from smoking. Yeah, so when you talk about the individual, then you talk about counterfactual. Right. Had I not smoked, I, I would, would have lived yeah. X number of years. Well, let's talk about the smoking case, because that was a, a fascinating bit of history in your book, which I, I thought I was aware of, but it was actually a far bit more grim and delusional than I realized. I mean, the, 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 there was a period of such active and protracted debate about whether or not smoking caused cancer that it went on far too long, and you had people, you had scientists who were smoking two and three and four packs a day, denying the linkage, and there's a nicotine-empowered level of confirmation bias that was ruling the conversation there. What lessons do you draw from that period in our history? To me, it means uh, something perhaps different than to other people. For me, it was an example of how scientists can argue about uh, things for which they don't have a language. They didn't have a language of causation at that time. They had a language of randomized experiment, which they couldn't conduct on smoking. Okay? Right. And that gave a Fisher, who was the top uh, uh, statistician at the time. An avid pipe smoker, if I recall. Uh, yeah, pipe smoker all his life. And it gave him ammunition to claim, hmm, maybe, maybe what we see here is just coincidental correlation between some genetic factor that makes you, you know, crave for nicotine on one hand, and it puts you in a cancer risk on the other. 
Okay, so what we are saying is just the effect of a confounder, right? right? Or a third variable that um, causes both. Okay, I am not sure that he did it because he was a smoker himself, or because he was he wanted to be an ipchamistabra, which means just a smart, a smart ass, smart ass, <laughs> <laughs> smart ass. Uh-huh. Okay, and to show off his knowledge about statistics and about the possibility that you might get the same results with a different hypothesis. Right. Yeah. I'm not sure what, which was the case, but he, he, the fact that he resisted the conclusion of other people went on for more than 10 years. I think many, millions of people died mm. as a result of that. But eventually it was resolved by a commissioner and they came out, the surgery general came out with a statement that it does cause cancer. And the way that came about it was uh, interesting. They uh, looked into uh, you know, the plausibility argument in order to calculate it, the degree to which uh, the g- hidden genetic factors will have to change your craving uh, for nicotine and that made it impossible or implausible that if you have this genetic factor, you'll grab eight times more than if you didn't have it. They don't have any mechanism between a genetic factor to make this craving plausible. Mm. Okay? That was a key for the conclusion that they came up with in the consensus they came up with, and things have been different since that. Right. But still, what one confronts there is the sense that based on a purely statistical argument, it's always a, an overreach to establish causation no matter how much data you have of correlation. Correctly. And that has not been appreciated to the degree it should be. No causes in, no causes out. Mm. That was a Nancy Cartwright slogan, which people, <laughs> makes sense. No, no, it does no, no causation without correlation, everybody understands, okay? But the idea is that if you want to get causal conclusion, you must have some causal assumption someplace or experiments, one or the two. Right. This is so important that <laughs> because so many people have forgotten. Let's linger on this notion of, of counterfactuals for another moment because so it, it, it does suggest that possibility is a real thing. And I've occasionally wondered, in fact, last time I wondered this in public, I, it, was, it was John Brockman's final edge question. And, and the, the one I suggested was, I don't know if you were in that particular round, but my last edge question, the question that year was, what should the last edge, edge question be? And I believe my question was, is the actual all that is possible, which is to say that is, is possibility an illusion? Is there only what is actual? Is the notion that something else could have happened always just an idea, and does it actually not reach into anything that uh, we can profitably think about? Is there simply just the fact of the matter in every case? And counterfactual thinking is, is explicitly thinking about what, what is possible, what, what might have been had things been different. And I guess, I guess I'll just uh, put it to you. How, how do we know that 
possibility is even a thing. It's useful to speak as though it were a thing. And this actually connects to the topic of free will, which you write about in the book, because yes. you know, you and I are convinced, you know, happily, not many people agree with us, but you and I are both convinced that free will is an illusion, but in one way or another, it's a, a useful or inevitable illusion. But we to still indulge. don't understand what makes it useful. Right, right. Okay. And, and, and we, you and I might disagree a little bit about how useful it is, but is it possible, and here there's the useful invocation of the concept, is it possible that possibility is an illusion as well? It is. Because the, <laughs> the history progresses along one trajectory, Mm. And that is the trajectory that was dictated by the Big Bang. And uh, <laughs> we are imprisoned by that. However, yeah. our, our mind has formed um, the notion of possible worlds um, that is, uh, uh, there could be other trajectories. Because you know, the equation of physics, if you take them, invite manipulation. I take one equation, I throw it out, okay? This is a possible world. The world with only three equations instead of the four Maxwell equations, you have only three. It's still a world, right? So we have, because we have it symbolically stored in our mind, I'm talking about hmm. equation of physics, we have the invitation to manipulate it. Take away equation, manipulate, change the parameters, bing, bing. It's easily done, and because it's so easily done, we do manipulate it, and the child understands, had you not spilled the milk, right. we'll not be stranded home. It still could be a kind of fiction. It could have a status analogous to us talking about the possible world of Hamlet, right? And we, we have a completely a, a vivid sense of, you know, Hamlet being the prince of Denmark and of ha having a certain personality and various problems. And... That's we don't talk about that, that as a possible world. We talk about that as a fictional world. But we're doing we're doing a sim we're playing a similar game cognitively when we do that. Perhaps it doesn't have to be Hamlet or poetry. It's simply do. Am I going to touch this table or not? I don't know. In one I don't world, know. Yeah, but yeah. I I don't know. But I do have a very very vivid sensation that I have the option. Correct. And yes. you too. That yes. you have the option yes. of deciding whether to touch or not. Yeah. Look at my yeah. finger. Yeah. I'm not sure. I'm not sure you have the option, but I'm pretty sure I have the and option. I yeah. know yeah. that this yeah. vivid sensation is an illusion. I don't have the option. Eventually, my neuron system will dictate if I do or don't touch it. But now we we seem to be talking about possibility and free will as though they were synonyms, and so free will. The area of the set of all assertions and concerns that that fall into the free will bin is a subset of counterfactual thinking and and, and possibility, right? So we we can talk about yeah. possibility, like had the had the uh, you know the constants of nature been slightly different, the universe would have been had a different character, right? Obviously, that doesn't have anything directly any direct connection to free will, but we're still talking about a, a possibility. Well, yeah. it yeah. has very strong connection. Well, ultimately, but because, like, that could be a universe without creatures like uh, ourselves that would have uh, yeah. free will. Yeah. I'll give yeah. you the connection. Yeah. We do have equations of physics for the world, so we can figure out how it would behave if I change Planck constant by mm -hmm. factor of two, okay? Yeah. I do have a model of myself, 
And because that I have it stored in some symbolic form in my mind, I have the invitation to change few parameters. So I'll tell you what would happen had I not touched the table. Right. The similarity between yeah. the two is having a symbolic representation of the world. Not only about what yes. happened in the world, but also the ropes behind the data. Right. Right. So, yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. In, in order to think about free will, you have to think about possibility and counterfactuals. And yet, we can think about possibility and counterfactuals with respect to the constants of nature prior to any beings like ourselves that may or may not have had the illusion of free will. But let me add one more piece here, and then, then we'll see if there's more to say. So there's another phenomenon that is related here, which is the notion of emergence. And I can't remember if you touched this in your book, but it's widely alleged in science that there are, emer there are emergent properties of complex systems, right? So you have atoms, and then you have atoms arranged in, in various molecular structures, and you can have certain molecules that find themselves in living systems, and those systems may, can have nervous systems and process information in various ways, and minds emerge as it was at some level of that complexity, and minds do things and direct behavior in the world. And at each level of emergence, you get phenomenon that conceptually can't be reduced to their lower-level constituents. I mean, so you, it, it, it's, you can't really talk about economic systems at the level of, of atoms, right? And yet, anything you're going to point to in the world that is an economic system, at least it's in our world, is, is made of atoms, and we're talking about the behavior of atoms, but it's much easier to summarize their behavior if you say, well, you know, the stock market crashed that day, and, you know, everyone went home early. We're never going to get there merely talking about atoms, and, at, and the high-level description gives a very easy summary of, 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 what ha of, of what happened. You know, why did, why did all those atoms move in the way that they did? Merely understanding the, you know, the electromagnetic forces involved is, 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 is going to be a very long route to understanding the behavior of all those atoms on that day. So people, many people draw the conclusion from this picture of emergence that there really is a disconnect from the lower level and the higher level. And the higher level things, whether they're minds or economic systems, have a reality that not only is not best explained in terms of its lower level constituents or defined in those terms, but it has a kind of top-down causal power so that minds do things to atoms that can never be explained at the level of atoms themselves. And this is, this is, this is where I've always felt that um, something spooky is, is sneaking into the conversation. So, like, so I mean, take consciousness as a, as a simple case, or take the idea that we should meet here for this conversation today. Now, on one level, this is a higher level, is a higher level abstraction, and you know, it's a linguistic phenomenon, it's a cognitive phenomenon. It's a phenomenon we can talk about we can't really talk about at the level of neurotransmitters and their effects. We talk about it in terms of buildings on a university campus and the time of day we're supposed to meet and the reasons why we wanted to speak. And many people would, would, would jump from that disconnect and say, well, 
there's this this reality of reasons and ideas about buildings and abstract concepts that has top-down consequences for the behavior of living beings, in this case, ourselves. But I would say that in that case, whatever the physical neural instantiation is of all of these ideas, that is the level at which it has causal efficacy, right? So it's like, so my idea that, you know, I'm running 15 minutes late, you know, I better send Judea an email telling him I'm going to be late. I experience it on the level of, of, of you know, emails and, and you know, the experience of looking at my watch. You know, that, that's the phenomenology. But it only has causal power at the level of neurotransmitters and signals to motor neurons and all the rest, right? So there really isn't, at the level of causation, the cash value of, of experience has to be run at the level of the physics of things. So there is no, it's not true to say that there's ever top-down causation in that sense. I mean, there's top, neurologically, there's top-down causation because there's, you know, frontal lobe influence on, you know, so-called, you know, lower structures in the brain. But we're still just talking about the physics. There's no top-down causation mm. from some other layer of a, of a so-called emergent phenomenon. I wonder if you have any opinion on that. I never thought about the top-down thing. I, I was more intrigued by the clash between the layers. Like the uh, possible world is a clash. We know that on, on the atomic level, there is no possible world. It's just one trajectory. But on, in our mind, I could have done things differently. So there are possible worlds, okay? I look at the clash of, for instance, of um, symmetry of time. The equation of physics are symmetrical in time. Whatever, if you run a picture forward or backward of the atomic motions, you would not be able to tell which is the correct picture. Okay, because both of them are compatible with the equation of, of Schrodinger equation, okay? So the, on the other hand, you never see, rarely see, the smoke going back into the chimney. That's a microscopic level. So here you have a clash between uh, the atomic description of things, which says everything is symmetrical in time. And here the microscopic tells you, no, it's time as direction, hmm. okay? This is a typical clash. The other clash is we're talking about causation. Okay? We know that neurons act, there is causation in our um, uh, neural system, which means there is no possible world. The world could not have been different in my action. And still, I send, we send people to prison for not, for not knowing better, for right. doing things that you shouldn't have done, and the prisoner claims, but you, you may be that way, okay? I was born that way. You programmed it that way. Okay? Yeah. This is a clash between two levels of description. One is the level of our software, where we talk about free will, and we talk about responsibility and regret, and the level of neural connection where there's no regret. There's only one trajectory. So... That's the right analogy to use, perhaps, the software-hardware analogy. So we can't understand a specific program in terms of, its, of just its machine code or just the, the electrical changes in the hardware. There's a higher-level description of this is a word processing program or this is a 
you know, this is an internet browser, and then we can have an, we can we can understand what's happening. But its actual causal efficacy is happening at the level of the machine code or beneath that, the actual physical changes in the, the hardware. That There's a level of abstraction, and there's, and there's a level of actual instantiation. But the level of abstraction does have power because these things are platform-independent. And, it, you know, minds could be, minds like our own even, could be substrate-independent if we could actually run them on an artificial platform. So if, in fact, there's no top-down influence... Well, there is a top-down. I mean, abstraction is, a, is, is an influence from, from above the layer of the physics of things, right? Because it, that, 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 that's the only thing that allows for platform independence in the case of a, like the software-hardware distinction. So the abstraction tells me you have an option to act one way or the other. And the physics tells me you don't have an option. There's a clash here. Mm. If I follow my abstraction and I act according to some uh, no, normal rules, it's a normal protocol, as if I have the option, I may or may not go to prison and in prison, I may fall and break my head, which will affect my neural architecture, okay? So, of course, there is some uh, top-down and, and bottom-up. I'm talking about only the uh, logical conflict between the two levels of abstraction. And I think this idea that we have options and we have will and regret and so forth, it occurs in the level of abstraction of our normal communication, yeah. which means we have a model of ourselves, of our software, of a different level of details. Okay. And this interaction between the level of description gives us the illusion that we have free will. Yeah. So I, I think I'm still confused, but I'm not confused about that. I said, so I think you and I are going to agree about free will almost entirely. I guess I'm confused. I, can, I managed to confuse myself on this on this notion of top-down influence because, and, you know, it's, to close the loop here, it is often the, the intellectual claim that is underwriting a, a very smart and educated person's belief in free will. As, as you know, as I would imagine you know, there are many scientists and philosophers who will defend, apparently to the death, or at least the, the death of their logic, the notion of free will in a way that you and I would challenge in the sense that it really does exist on some level. Even there, there are people who think, who believe in libertarian free will, like you, you really could have done otherwise, even if the universe were exactly the, the way it had been a moment ago. There are other people, as you know, who, are, who call themselves compatibilists. Compatibilists. Yeah, my friend Dan Dennett is one. I'm one. Yeah, you're one, but you're different than Dan. I could, can, yeah, I can I already know. tell, yes, because <laughs> I'm agreeing with you and I'm fighting with Dan. So uh, there, there are different forms of compatibilism. But let me just just see if I can close the door to this one piece of confusion I, I now suffer. This notion that an emergent property, kind of a higher level of abstraction, can have downward causal power, right? Now, most of the other examples I entertain seem to be unconvincing for me on, the, on this front, because I have, if you're going to talk about my desire to drink a cup of coffee, having causal power being the proximate cause of my actually going to get coffee, it's not at the level of the phenomenology that it has, the experience that it has causal power. It's at the level of whatever that desire is at the level of my brain, 
that is linked to my arms and legs sending me to the coffee machine. So it still is at the level of the physics that it is causally efficacious. I happen to experience it at, a, at another level, or, or at least my experience is, is this other component. But when you talk about software and the power of abstraction, there seems to be another element, which is here we have the logical structure of a computer program, which can only be talked about at the level of the language in which it's written here and its, and its logical structure because, and it is in principle irreducible to what any specific machine is doing with it, because it can be run on many different machines and, and highly non-analogous machines. It can be run on machines that presumably don't use any form of electricity, right? And, then, and so how do you deal with the fact that there is this layer of abstraction that where, where the causal power seems to be best placed? When you run it in the world at each instantiation, it is the cash value is in the form of what it's doing at the level of hardware. But still, its logical relationships matter at the level of the software. You would never. What, what you, I don't get from you is mm -hmm. the interpretation of the word. How do you deal? How do you deal? What do <laughs> you have to deal with? Right. I, if if I don't see any clash, I don't have to deal. It's fine. I see clash in in the in interpreting. But, but how, it, how, how, how is that not top-down causal Fine, let's causal, call it top-down, call it up, down, up. I'm an engineer. I want to design a robot that, that has a certain uh, characteristics, has a right. certain behavior. Okay? Right now, I, I see a clash here. I want a robot to tell me that he wants to do something. I don't know how to program wants. So I have an engineering problem. Once I, I understand how you and I, what you and I mean by I want, or I made it out of free will, if I understand that, I can program it. This is my dealing, okay? Yeah. Okay. It's an yeah. engineering problem. It's in terms of free will and regret, I have this notion, that I have a sketch that all it is is one level of software looking at a blueprint of a layer below it and changing it, changing priorities. That's what I mean by next time don't spill your milk or next time don't rob a bank. Okay? Yeah. yeah. Ne next time don't rob a bank. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Put you right. in prison. Yeah. So when you get free, next time you think twice. What does that mean? You're going to change the priority that governs the software layer below, um, be below the one we are talking about. Okay. Because you have a blueprint of the layer below you, and you can change parameters of it. And you don't have a total description of your software because that will violate uh, the halting problem. But you have a blueprint, mm -hmm. okay? And you have parameters. So you have the power to change your own software by changing a few parameters. And that means next time I'm going to remember my punishment and... And right. go to another bank. But but of course, <laughs> yes, but of course, yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. But of course, all of these changes in you, you're changing your priorities, you're regretting what you did, all of this is more just pure causation at the level of the universe. So it's, this is not the free will that people think they have. These are just more lawful changes in Correct, a complex yeah. system. On the atomic level, you haven't made any, you haven't changed any priorities, you yeah. haven't done a thing. 
you just follow the laws of physics from Big Bang. Okay, and we should add that you know, many people who, I think it's at last, last time I checked, something like 30% of physicists believe in the many worlds view of quantum mechanics. And so in that picture, anything that is possible is happening somewhere. Right, so there are many different possible versions of this conversation. There are many. There's there was the one where you touched the table. There was the one where you didn't touch the table. All of those choices are being made by the universe, and the universe is splitting into increasingly dissimilar copies of itself from this point forward. It's the hardest thing to believe it that never exists. Never appeals I think. to me. Yes, I'm with I you. I learned it's, quantum it's... mechanics. I know how to solve Schrodinger equation. Yeah. yeah, but it never solved the problem of free will for me. That's oh a no! Cop out. No no no! It, it, it doesn't relate to free will in this case. You you don't get to choose which universe you're in. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So let's let's drill down on free will for a second because you really I think you're the only person I've found who has kind of hit upon some of the same ways of of answering the concerns of people who are still attached to the the ordinary notion of free will and like just how how we talk about the notion of you should have done otherwise. You shouldn't have robbed the bank. What, 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 when I don't believe in free will, what do I mean when I say to my daughter, you should have done your homework last night, or you should do it now? And how do I think about my own regrets, right? So if I've, I did something, it turned out badly, I regret it. For me, and now you know, I think for you, these are not statements that I could have done otherwise. These are affirmations that in similar or nearly identical circumstances in the future, I will want to do otherwise. This is an evaluation of outcomes and a commitment to being better in the future, right? But it's a statement about the future. It's not a statement about right. the way the past could have been. It's a computer instruction. Right. And so the next time you are facing a similar situation, okay, reprioritize your software. Right. right. No, in the instruction right now, not next time. Right, right now, reprioritize your software so that next time, when you're facing the same situation, you shall act differently. Yeah, yeah. But we are dealing with instruction all the time. We phrase it not as an instruction, but as something that happened in the past. You should have done mm. your homework. Okay. Well, it was interesting that the people, and again, I'm, I'm referencing not, you know, especially ordinary people. I'm, I'm referencing psychologists and neuroscientists and philosophers, physicists. The people who believe in free will also tend to believe not in immortal souls that are pulling the gears of, of biology. They believe that human minds are the product of information processing at the level of the brain. They believe that the mind is what the brain is doing, and yet they're not comfortable with this notion that free will, as, as it ordinarily conceived, doesn't exist. And yet they would never, I think with the exception of Dan Dennett, they wouldn't want to attribute free will to a robot that successfully passed the Turing test and, and you know, exhibited general intelligence. I think if you if you said to most people, and this is why Dan and I fight about this, because Dan, in my view, Dan is, is redefining free will and then saying it's compatible with, with science, but he's not, and he thinks his redefinition is a virtue, whereas 
in my world, he just seems to be changing the subject from what people think they that what people think they have and think they want and giving them something else. But so for Dan, we are biological robots, right? And if we build robots that function like human beings, it will be appropriate to attribute free will to them as well. But of course, if we build robots where the full program is available to us, we know exactly how they're built, we know exactly what they're going to do in various situations, that's precisely the circumstance where free will is absent on most people's account. But right? This is precisely where the clash is. We know that a robot, and that's the beauty of thinking about a robot, right. is an embodiment of the philosophical question of free will. We know that robots just follow instructions, okay? And they are made of deterministic gates, logical yeah. gates. And even if they can change the instructions, they will be doing that by virtue of their prior instructions. Oh, prior prior yes. instructions. So they can't get out of the causal system right. that, that birthed them. Yeah. They cannot act differently than the way they program. Right. But this doesn't prevent them from speaking to each other as if they have free will. And this is, as an engineer, this is my test. Mm. Will a robot team play better soccer if they were equipped with a with a hypothetical and religious uh, speech of free will? Right, you should have passed me the ball. You should have passed me the ball. Yeah. Okay? I'm looking for the pragmatic, <laughs> the engineering question of what do we gain by this illusion? Once we understand the gaining, the gain, where it is, on what level, we can engineer it. Mm. And then we'll understand ourselves better. We understand what drives us to believe so adamantly and uncompromisingly in the illusion of free will, even though we know it doesn't exist. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, I've done enough meditation such that I actually no longer experience it when I pay attention. Really? Yeah, I, I, so I, I don't have the conflict that most people have. So it, it's, it's absolutely obvious to me that I don't know what I'm going to think until the thought appears, right? Thoughts just appear, and intentions just appear. If I suddenly remember, oh, I forgot my parking ticket, that just comes out of nowhere, right? So like the, the sense that there is an agent who is, is authoring those thoughts, a thinker of the thoughts, that left me a long time ago. So, so I don't I'm actually, still imprisoned by that. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, so I don't, so there's actually no conflict. I mean, I feel like the getting rid of the conceptual notion of free will or, or recognizing that it doesn't make any sense is actually more compatible with my experience when I pay attention to it than the alternative. So that's, I don't have that particular problem. I have other problems. So we've begun to touch on AI and what it would mean to build a, a robot that passes the Turing test. I guess we'll, let's say something about the current state of things, because we're, you know, AI has made immense gains of late, but not the sort of gains that signal that AGI or, or general intelligence is necessarily around the corner. You have some thoughts about the, the lack of transparency of deep learning systems. Why is that a concern? Yeah, it's, uh, well, if, on the first level, it's of concern to people who build it. Mm. They, do know how, they do not know how to debug it. And if, if it doesn't perform the way it is expected, then you need to have a guidance for diagnosis and for repair. And uh, it doesn't exist now. 
And we don't know if the uh, deviation between expectation and performance is due to programming or due to noise or due to uh, some other factors mm-hmm. that cause the, you know, the, the self-driving car to um, go over to hurt a pedestrian. We don't know the cause of that unless we go and break it apart. And that's the whole idea of explanation, to give it you a level of description that you can take things apart and examine them one by one and say, oh, that was the cause of the fault. I'll repair it. So repairing is a very important element in system building. That's one thing. And the other one is, uh, I personally, I don't like to work with uh, in domain where I don't understand my product. Mm. So it's just a personal preference. I like to work with equations so I can take them apart and modify them. So I don't feel comf- comfortable in working with systems that can surprise me, and I don't know why. And then the, the third question is, as a society, we are building here unpredictable organisms, better than ourselves, right. capable of computation, which are better than ourselves. And that's scary, because the question comes, how do we control it? To what degree we regulate research? regulate construction of such systems if we don't have any idea about their future capability. Mm. So yeah, now intuitions divide here fairly strongly. There are many of us who are quite worried about artificial intelligence and see no alternative but to build it. I mean, obviously, it's, it's going to be built insofar as we were able to build it. You know, intelligence is the most valuable resource we have. We, we want more of it. But this the so-called control problem or alignment problem, the idea that we could build machines more competent than ourselves that might not be perfectly aligned with our interests and might not care that they're not aligned, right? They might not be amenable to our saying, oh, no, 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 uh, we prefer you not do that. You know, that's not what we wanted you to do. Could you come back and, and do some more of this? Insofar as they become vastly more competent than we are, they might stand in relation to us the way we stand in relation to microorganisms insects. or insects or chickens. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, my, my, yeah. my favorite example is a chicken. And so just, just how disposed to care would we be about the fate of chickens if something we, we suddenly cared about you know, was, was antithetical to their well-being? And we, we know the answer to that question. So the thing that is of concern to many of us is that Provided we succeed, we build intelligent machines, truly intelligent, autonomous machines. And in the ultimate case, we build machines that can improve themselves and build or build the next generation of, of, of intelligent machines. So something like an intelligence explosion of the sort that I.J. Good and many others have worried about. And it almost doesn't matter how fast that happens, but it could be as slow as you want it to be. At a certain point, we are in relationship to other beings that are more powerful and more intelligent than ourselves, if we go down this path. And that seems almost in principle to be a relationship where we will not be able to predict what they do or what they want or what they come to want, and there will be no possibility of control. And this is where intuitions divide. Some people feel like, okay, that's potentially a recipe for suicide or some, you know, horrifically dystopian experience, at least from the point of view of humanity. But there are others who are, who are very smart who 
they think many things. One, they think that, one, we would never be so stupid to build something that could harm us in that way, right? That sounds ridiculous the moment I get to the end of the sentence. But other people allege that ethical intelligence is sort of guaranteed to come along for the ride, so that if we're building things that are more, more intelligent than ourselves, we will be perforce building things more ethical than ourselves, and therefore things that are bound to be the best safeguard for our well-being. They're not going to stand as we do in relation to chickens, which is to say callously trampling them or eating them. They will. What we will successfully build is a generation of superintelligences which are super ethical, and that, that can't help but be aligned with our well-being. Again, that sounds so Pollyannish that I, I can barely say it with a straight face. Where do your intuitions go here with respect Let's, to concern? Yeah, when I come to this point, I use all my scientific background to tell you you cannot have, you cannot have intuition about that. You cannot have a feeling, and if you have intuition and feeling, they're worthless because we haven't experienced this kind of predicament. But again, we can only make analogies to chicken. Yeah, so, but the analogy is, so you, we might be using a bad analogy, granted, but it's, it's a compelling one to think that, here's one assumption that, that I think is, is, is fair. In the space of all possible minds, more intelligent than our own, right? So just that there's, there's, yeah. there's some set of all possible minds that, are, that we could build or could cause to build themselves. There are some, and perhaps many, and my intuition would be most, that wouldn't be perfectly aligned with our well-being. Correct. Right? So there, there, there has to be a way to do this wrong, right? So that already closes the door to some oh, level of, of hopefulness here. Yes, and I've been convinced, converted, I would say, to the camp, to the Sword Russell camp, right. <laughs> which is governed by worries and mm. the need to control and the need to at least attempt to predict the possibilities that could confront us. He convinced me that we should well, think about it. Was it was it Stuart who convinced you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that's, that's yeah. fantastic, because he, he's somebody who, when I want a sanity check, he's the person I talk to. He, he, he has convinced me. I mean, I, I came to this topic encountering his arguments uh, among, his, his arguments were among the first I encountered when I, when I came to this topic. So so I, I didn't. I was never really a doubter, but he—he's he, incredibly sensible on this particular topic. Yeah, he comes me, but uh, again, I'm—I go berserk in this horrendous, horrendous space of possible worlds. One of them that I haven't seen discussed is so what? So we become chickens to these super beings, okay? And they treat us nicely, and they give us uh, the ability to peck in the right place mm -hmm. or to be slaughtered in the right... Um, <laughs> that, that's not sounding as good, yeah. <laughs> you I, mainly... I was with, I was with you to, uh, up until slaughtered. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it is. Maybe we are going there. Mm. Is it very bad? Are chicken, chicken extremely regretful for mm. letting us doing onto them? What they could have prevented, I so, don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I think some of them are. Yeah. I mean, so, so the analogy that I've used before, which gets at the concern better for me, is if you imagine that we had been invented by dogs, right, so to, to safeguard their interests, 
And so for at least 10,000 years, this has worked out very well for dogs. I mean, we, we spend an immense amount of our resources to care for them, feed them. They have lives that are much better, for the most part, than any wild animal and certainly any wolf. And we genuinely love them. I mean, like, so we have the cognitive and emotional fixations on them that they would hope for, right? I mean, their, their well-being, in, in many cases, to our irrational sacrifice, is paramount for us. And yet, we've clearly grown so and so far beyond what dogs could ever imagine that most of what we do is completely inscrutable to them. They have no idea what we really care about or you know, what we're really saying in our conversations. And we really stand like gods to them. And yet, if something happened in the world, if there was some terrible xenovirus that were jumping, it was jumping from dogs to people, and it was you know, 100% fatal, we could decide tomorrow that we just had to kill all the dogs. It would be totally possible for just there to be a sea change in our attitude toward dogs because of something that dogs could never understand. We formed new goals in the meantime. And it seems like we, if we go down this path, we are poised to build machines that could be as, as untransparent to us as all that. And though they may be safeguarding our interests generation after generation, they could suddenly have new priorities. Yes, and now let's take another level. What makes us different from them? Perhaps they are us. So we form identity hmm. to our masters. Their success is our success. Even though they decide one day to kill us, we are really part of them. Our identity lasts. <laughs> okay. Who are we? <laughs> Just a co collection of strange proteins <laughs> made it to make it look alike in some similarities, sometimes look differently. So perhaps my master robot is me, and I'm happy with his success and his decision to exterminate me. All right, well, this is, this is the scene in the movie where we cut to you being trampled by killer robots. <laughs> well, I mean, one thing I would grant you is that if these robots were conscious, right, this is, I'm uncertain about whether I think everyone's uncertain about how, you know, exactly where and how consciousness arises. So it's at least conceivable that we could build super intelligent machines that are not conscious. It may be that consciousness doesn't come along with intelligence automatically. Why? It's, uh... Well, the, uh, there's, no, there's no why one way or the other. It's, 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 just, it's, it's conceptually possible for me, at least, and whether, in fact, it's true of the world. I think consciousness is an integral part of intelligence. Not necessarily. No, because well, no, most of what we consider our own intelligent behavior isn't associated with consciousness. Like, I mean, even just language use now. Like, so you and I are having a conversation. You know, sometimes I'm making more or less sense, but insofar as I'm making any sense at all and following the rules of grammar, I'm doing all of that unconsciously, right? So it's not, it's not clear why a conversation needs to be associated with consciousness. Because you said the word I. Well, no, I mean, I... And I understood you. But presumably you could build a robot that could play this language game <laughs> with it. This is a, so yeah, that's interesting that you feel that way. I mean, I'm agnostic as to whether or not, it's at least possible that consciousness is an epiphenomenon from my point of view, so that, that it's actually not doing anything. Now, is it different than the Chinese room argument? That you cannot build a language transmitter? If you understand, right. if, you, if you fake understanding Chinese, then... You, that doesn't mean that you know Chinese. 
Yeah, well, uh, many of us are are not especially persuaded with the with by the Chinese room argument. Well, me, at this point. I'm not yeah. persuaded yeah. because number one, yeah. I know you cannot do it. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, they, that's the other it's part. Combinatorial yeah. reason. Right. Why you cannot do it? And uh, then, uh, so, uh, my philosophy is: if you fake it, you have it. Well, that's interesting, but obviously, in a local case, that can't be true because you like if you fake chess. You can fake chess better than Gary Kasparov at this point, but you don't have it in the sense that. Okay, well, that's, well, then you're you're just you're you're speaking about this differently than many people in the field, and I'm reacting to the the expression that that uh, Judea made. You didn't hear it on the microphone. Uh, it was one of astonishment that few actors in Hollywood could surpass. There is a a very strong opinion on the part of many people doing this work that. The best chess engines on Earth, you know, let's, let's take you know AlphaGo at the moment, have no concept of chess, right? They have no understanding of, of it, that they're playing a game. Though they're doing it better than any person who ever cared about chess ever has, there's no chess in that. No, there's no experience uh, of chess. <laughs> there's no notion of chess. There are different ways of winning chess. But, but that's my point. One of them is brute force. With or without brute force, I mean, so so there's there's even if we had a more intelligent chess program, still the brute force ones we have are better than the than the Correct. than the human ones Correct. we also have. Yeah. So does it mean that you, you don't understand? You you use the term you don't understand chess. You don't understand chess the way we do. That's well, what you mean. What does it mean to say that the algorithm that is producing the best Chess play understands chess. Right now, what the people when people converse about chess and they say this sentence, they mean they uh, would not be able to write a chess commentary in the New York Times. Right. Okay. Right. That's what they mean, because when they have to explain the move, all they will tell you is, "I looked ahead, and then I looked ahead again, and I looked ahead again, and I came to a conclusion." Okay. And that is not what the New York Times will publish. In the New York Times will publish a commentary in the following way. I looked at the center and I thought I lost control over the center. So I decided to, um, text, uh, to make a, a sacrifice, sacrifice my queen. That's the language in which chess masters communicate. So the difference only in but the heuristics through which we communicate about it. So that's what they mean. You don't communicate in my language, in my conception of the strategies. I have a different strategy than you. But it doesn't mean you don't understand chess. Right. But just take the human case. So there's, there are many ways of dissecting out the variable of consciousness from a performance, even like in vision, say, or I mean, this is especially true with like, you know, motor behavior. But even in vision, there's the, this phenomenon called blind sight. Right where you can have an injury to the the occipital cortex, you know, your your vision cortex, and primary visual cortex, and you could have a region of your visual field where you subjectively, you the subjective conscious person, think you are blind, but we can test whether you can see anything there, and the truth is you can predict the, the let's say the orientation of a, a line with you know ninety five percent accuracy. And yet your experience is of being blind, mm-hmm. right? So your experience is you're just guessing successfully. But 
you're you're answering some of the the criteria of vision, which is you can you're successfully getting this information from the world such that you know you don't consciously know how the the, the line is oriented, but you you in fact can guess correctly. So that that breaks apart the the phenomenology, the the conscious part from the the intelligence, the the information processing part, or at least you know in 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 this for this example. But there are many other examples of that where most just most of what you successfully do as a person, the ability to, I mean, this becomes more and more obvious in in complex motor tasks like like athletics, where you're you're learning to do something for the first time, like to hit a golf ball, and all of that effort is conscious, and it's it's a terrible experience of just repeated failure. But once you start getting good, then you begin to lo- you, you're losing your sense of how you do any of it, and and then it becomes unconscious when it's truly successful. And when consciousness begins to intrude later on in the process, you learn something new that you, you that you know some golf instructor tells you to do. You actually can get worse because it's disrupting your this this unconscious motor routine. So the question is, perhaps we could build a golf playing robot or a chess playing robot or a an autobiographical, you know, speech robot, you know, the robot that will tell you what it was like to be a little robot that would be never associated with consciousness. Where all of those performances would be successful, you're faking it successfully, but you are faking it at the level of consciousness. When do we go through the transition? From system two to system one, I'm using Kahneman. Yeah. Yes. From the reasoning part to the uh, automatic and heuristic part, when we are facing a new environment that we haven't seen before and we have we don't have any experience, and then we have to reason, and then we go through a, a transition period which is called acquire expertise. Expert expert has a difference from the uh, non-expert in the sense that non-expert have to think about things, and the expert has it explicitly stored mm. what to do. If I see a collection of symptoms, I know you have a flu or malaria, right? That's an expert. A novice doctor thinks about it. Wait a moment. What did I learn in school? Does it make sense? And it takes time, and that's the reasoning part. But the two of them working together constantly. In chess, you can see it so beautifully. Reasoning forward, what will happen if I move, take this move, and my opponent, that is the system uh, two. It's a reasoning part, right? Mm. A system one, a master chess player looked at the game and said, you are in a bad position. I must take this move yeah. without thinking ahead. Okay, so I love chess, not as a player, but as a, jurist, as a programmer. And I wrote a book about heuristics where the chess game is the embodiment of all these philosophical ideas about system one and system two, about um, even counterfactual, I should have taken a different move. Mm-hmm. It's all embodied in something so so easy to program, so easy to understand. So what is the, the, the intuition part of chess? That's the evaluation function that you put on a chess position. You see, material advantage, opening this, controlling the center, I've castled already, things of that sort, okay? I looked at chess position, ah, I have intuition, it's so good. Shannon had a brilliant idea. 
Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon, yeah. the same Claude Shannon of information theory. He was the first one to say, let's marry the two, heuristics and reasoning. How? Look ahead, look ahead, and when you come to the horizon of your search, load it with your intuition, with your uh, dirty rule of thumb evaluation of the board. Okay? And then roll back and see which move gives you the best chance of winning. Okay? Mm. That was the first marriage of the two components, heuristics on one hand and reasoning on the other hand. Mm. Beautiful combination. And I think many conversations about the interplay between these two um, software strategies mm-hmm. can be nicely demonstrated in chess. And that's why I, I, I like it as a metaphor right. for interplay. Right. Even in consciousness, so a guy who has all the um, beautiful evaluation function, just imagine a program, a hypothetical program, in which you store a number for every chess position. It's a huge, it, 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 I don't think you have enough molecules in the universe to right. store it. But imagine that you do have computed it, and every chess position has a number, how good it is. Everything is done. That's either faking yeah. it. That's, that's what you would call a faking chess playing. You so, just so, look so, at the table. So, so just to make sure I understand, so there's, there is, in fact, a finite number of chess games, but yes. it's, a, it's an astronomically large number that we could never tally them all. But if you could tally them all, the entire problem of chess would be solved. Solved. Because from any board position, you would be able to trace what, whether the next move wins in That's the end. That's right. right. There is a characterization of every chess position. Is it a win, a draw, or a lose for the next player? Right. Okay? It's not, we know it from basic principle yeah. that it exists. You can prove that it exists. Right. Okay? But, of course, we don't know how to label it, but we can hypothesize a huge program uh, with possible <laughs> universes that create a table for you. So for every chess position, you have win, loss, or draw. Okay? You're done. Right. That's a fake. This would be a, an example of faking it. Yeah. Would that be, by definition, true at the beginning of a game that white would always win? We, we don't know, by the way. We don't know? We don't okay. know. I mean, intuitively, it seems like you have a adva- first mover advantage would be decisive in that universe. It no. may be a draw. So maybe maybe it perfect may chess is a draw. It may be a loss. It may be. Is it? Yeah, yeah, that that's that would be a bet that would be <laughs> fascinating to play and adjudicate. So is it possible that in a world where chess is solved, which is to say we know what perfect play is for each side of the board, is it possible that white loses? Sure, because you you have to move. What would you put the probability at? Uh, I think it's very small, but it's based on what. Right. Would 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 you? Uh, well, okay. If your fate or the fate of humanity depended on you choosing white or black in in a game of per, a perfect chess, I uh, choose white. You choose white. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we, we we're three for three. We have uh, I, I some think of the same intuitions. Checkers was yeah. solved. Checkers was solved. Yes. Yeah. Did did something counterintuitive happen? My friend there? Uh, Richard Koff. He knows yeah, the latest. I wouldn't be surprised if it had been solved. Okay, well, uh, Judea, now I'm mindful of, of your time. We have gone uh, close to 90 minutes. No, and, I'm enjoying uh, it. Yeah, oh, good. I, so am I. So am I. Uh, <laughs> but so, so just, to, just to close the loop on consciousness, 
for me, I, I think it is, it's, it's still just an open question what consciousness is and how it relates to information processing and it's just at what level the lights come on. And is it possible for intelligent systems, even more intelligent than we are, to, they might not be human-like with all that intelligence, but they might be more competent on every task we set them, and the lights of consciousness might not come on in the sense that there might not be something that it's like to be one of these machines. You're using consciousness in a different interpretation that I'm Maybe. using it. I look Maybe. at consciousness as having a model of yourself. Yeah, there's a clear dissociation for me there. You can have consciousness without having a model of yourself, in, in my sense, and you can have a model of yourself without having consciousness. Mm. In my in my sense, yeah. So so what? Revelation. I like to. So yeah, we're. we're I like we're, to read your books. We're, we're we're speaking past each other. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, so for again, there, the, this is where tastes philosophically divide to some degree because I'm using the the terminology that I still think was best put by Thomas Nagel, the philosopher, in in what is it like to be a bat, and you know the people on the opposite side of the philosophy of mind, people like Dan Dennett or Paul Churchland or many others hate this formulation because they think it's circular, and, and it is, in fact, circular. But, I mean, the Nagel's definition is, you know, whatever consciousness is in the case of a bat, what we mean when we say a bat is conscious is that it is like something to be a bat for the bat. On the bat side, if, like, if, you, if you could change places with a bat, it wouldn't be synonymous with the lights going out or with, with, with the eradication of all experience. There's some experiential qualitative domain of batness. And that's what we mean when we say that a bat is conscious. Whether or not we could ever understand what it's like, whether, you know, who knows what it's like to, to be ruled by sonar. And so it's the question of, am I committing a murder if I destroy this microphone stand? Well, we have a fairly strong intuition that the answer is no, that the stand, it doesn't experience happiness or suffering. So it has no interests that I could be violating. Mm -hmm. But if we found out that, oh no, actually this microphone stand is conscious, this is actually a super intelligent AI and it's processing information in precisely the way that we now understand, you know, gives rise to consciousness. You know, I just, I just can't tell from the outside because it's not doing anything, but no, no, this, this microphone stand is experiencing a profound level of well-being. And if I, you know, throw it in the fire, I've committed a, you know, a horrible crime. So consciousness for me is, is, is the, you know, the basis of all discussion of values and, and the moral implications of things we do, you know, questions of happiness and suffering. And I think we, if we build conscious machines, if we build machines that can really suffer, not just seem to suffer, that has moral implications, right? And, and, you know, and, and we, if we don't understand what we're doing, conceivably we could build the, these machines by accident or we could build simulated worlds. I mean, if consciousness is just a matter of information processing, we could build simulations where agents within the simulation are conscious and suffering. And we could do that by accident, even. We could create a hell by accident if we're doing it in a, a way that we don't totally understand. I just don't follow you. You don't follow me there? No, I, you tie consciousness to elements such as suffering and the pain. And... So what makes suffering suffering? Like if I told you you're a, you're you're something terrible. It's okay, so, a citation of neuron, which cause other neurons to be either you know, paralyzed or to be uh, over energized. 
It's just a chemical process. Why is that a determiner of consciousness? Well, no, no. Consciousness is the is the necessary condition for it. So you need you need to be so so you I, need. I suffer. It's not even not my finger suffers. It's no, I. No, no. But but it's it's the it's your the conscious I. There's 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 part yeah. of you that there's part of the person that's not conscious. Like you're you're presumably there are parts of your brain. That there's nothing that it's like to be like that. Like we could literally remove them, and you wouldn't notice, right? Like you know, obviously, much of what is appearing in consciousness is being being created by by these parts that are unconsciously doing their work. But there are areas of the brain where you know we touch them or we send a little current into an assembly of neurons, and that immediately changes your experience. And then there are other areas. Where you'd say no, I don't, didn't feel a thing, right? And then the question is, just leaving a trace in memory. What's the big deal? Well, no, no so... well, but it's not. Yeah. But it's, it can be memory. There's there's conscious memory, and then there's unconscious memory. There's memory. There's memory that is effective. Like like if I ask you, do you remember what you had for lunch? Right. This is now your episodic memory. You can pause for a moment, and then you can then something will come or not. But you know, if, if you remember lunch. Mm-hmm. There'll be some conscious signature of of what you had for lunch. You'll you'll form an image. You know, you'll you can, you'll remember where you were. But if I say to you, "Do you remember how to ride a bicycle?" Right now, you may firmly believe that you probably do, but you can't look inside and inspect whether you still have the memory. And if and if we had if we had degraded your memory, your motor me- routine mm-hmm. around bicycle riding. You wouldn't discover it until I just handed you a bicycle and asked you to ride, and then all of a sudden you'd find you didn't know how to do it. It's a memory that is unconscious and can only be expressed by actually enacting it, and you know, you'd know you be quite surprised not to be able to do it. I don't know if this will get at it for you or not, but you know, let's say you have to have a surgery, right? And it's, uh, you know, we're going to give you a general anesthetic, and you'll be under for four hours, and it's, you know, it's a major surgery. You definitely want a general anesthetic for it. And I tell you, what, we, there's two different anesthetics we can give you. We can give you the, the usual one where you're unconscious, right? You don't experience anything. Or we can give you the one where you're conscious the whole time and therefore tortured, but we give you an amnesiac drug at the end so you don't remember any of it. So at the end of the, in both worlds, at the end of this procedure, You'll say thank you, doctor. I didn't feel a thing because that will be mm-hmm. true of your memory at that point. But in world two, at any moment during that procedure, if we could have sampled your experience, you know, you would have been in in intolerable pain. Those seem different to me. Whether or not this person who comes out of that operating theater, it seems exactly the same. I think. I mean, I have a powerful intuition that those are not the same world lines of personhood. What do you what do you think? Which which which, which procedure do you want? Do you want do you want the white or black? It's not a matter of choice. Now <laughs> yeah. you are talking about distinction. Are these two experiences different? Yes, they are different. Yeah. And one of them you want to label more conscious than the other. Well, the difference one, was consciousness was present was during present, that during that yeah. surgery. Fine, that's a right. Well, so <laughs> the, good just, distinction. That that's what I mean by consciousness. That, that, yeah, that, that there was something. He, there was something that it was like for you to have the surgery. Yes, and there and, and there the wasn't surgery, in the other case. You had a model of yourself, 
and you had even a word for this muddle, you say, in the muddle of myself, I'm suffering. I feel pain. That is a difference. Right. But, it, you, you, but, yeah, so you could, but see, again, it's not, just, it's not just a model of yourself because you can, so you can lose a model of yourself and still be conscious of the world. For instance, you know you can you can I mean, this again. This takes well, us. You're in, part of the world, right? But so. you but you can so for instance you can be, have this takes us back to the esoterica of meditation and and yes. you know even psychedelic experiences can. Have you ever taken a psychedelic in your no, life? Did, did no, you miss I the sixties entirely? I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> so so no, nothing nothing has passed your lips. No LSD or or psilocybin no, or nothing. okay. All right, I won't I won't force the issue now, but the. It's possible to have an experience of yourself as a person, you know, where, where you're, you know, there's, there's the conventional experience of you're aware of the world, you're aware of your body in the world, but in some sense your body is part, from the point of view of your subjectivity, of who you feel yourself to be, your body is kind of part of the world. I mean, you, most people feel that they're in their heads as subjects almost as passengers in their bodies. They're kind of riding around in the body, and your hand is out here, and you can use it. I mean, you, you can move it or not, but you could also imagine being without it, right? Like, if, if, if I lost my hand, my, my, I'm still up here, the, the conscious witness of my, of my life and of the world. And this sense of being a subject can go away. And also a sense of having a body can go away. You can, you can, you can either in meditation or in uh, you know various perturbations of consciousness, no longer be representing your body. So like the, so the the data is just not there. You're no longer you no longer feel the shape of your body, say, and you're not no longer getting inputs that mm-hmm. are reminding you that you have a hand or a foot or you don't you don't feel any pain, say. And this can happen in you know, certainly in twilight anesthesia where you're still conscious but you are. Your body is, you know, you're, you're basically paralyzed and you're not, you're not getting any data from the body. And you can cease to represent yourself as the subject in the middle of experience. And then what is left is just the representation of the world, right? So like you can, you can see and hear mm-hmm. and all of that's coming in, but there's no seer or hearer. There's no, there's no one to whom it refers in those moments. There's just this open space of consciousness and among the contents of consciousness are sights and sounds. And so they're just different ways of being conscious that don't answer to the name of, I have a model of myself in that moment. You could just have a model of a world. I don't have the ego. Right. Into, I see a bunch of agents who they call themselves the environment. I'm one of those agents, but I cannot even know who, who am I among the agents there. That's not exactly the case, but that's a that's a different case that makes sense to me. So presumably, you could build a robot like that, right? It might be a badly functioning robot, but <laughs> but you you that that could be an ex, you could have a model of a world without a model of a self, and have that be yeah. That's the beginning, right? You have a model of the environment, and now a consciousness comes in whenever you label one and say it's me. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. You can be conscious of the world without saying it's me. Correct. But eventually, to get a consciousness, you are you applying what you understand about the world to yourself, and you look at yourself as one of those factors. Let's call them neutral factors. Mm-hmm. Okay, operating in the world, 
And now you, everything that you learn about the environment applies to you as an agent within this environment. Beautiful mm. parsimony of computation. Well, yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that's one way to be, but um, I think we're going to have to take LSD next time we do a podcast <laughs> <laughs> to, to get to so this next, other side of this conversation. Next time we'll bring with us one of those conscious robots. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's, uh, it might be less available, but... Um, Listen, Judea, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you about all of this. Great, great to talk to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, is there so your the book is uh, the book of why, which has been is it in paperback yet? Has it come out or is it still uh, hardcover? No, the publisher decides that uh, it does well enough to uh, for another year oh, of uh, hardcover. Yeah, well, hardcover is, is nicer anyway. But uh, this is your deep analysis of causality and, and why we have not been talking about it enough in science and how we can model it with, uh, with fair, a very fair, simple algorithm. Fairly accessible diagrams, too. Yeah, it's, um, so, and it is, this is said somewhere in the, in the marketing copy, but it's not just that. It is, it is very much in the spirit of Danny Kahneman's opus, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's, it, it is accessible okay. in, in precisely that way and wraps up a... Um, a ton of, of theoretical work. So, and uh, are you are you online anywhere? Do you do anything? I do tweeting now. I love oh, you're on Twitter. Tweeting, yes. Oh, I did I know that? I can't. I've been so I off Twitter know. of late. I I, can't, I don't even know if I'm following you, but I will. I, I will follow 18, 000, uh, awesome. uh, followers, and they ask questions about the book. I'm oh, trying great. to satisfy no reader left behind. Awesome. Yeah. Well, <laughs> follow Judea on. Twitter. What is your Twitter handle? Do you know offhand? Yeah, at Yuda. Y U D A H. That's the way my mother huh. called me. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. Okay, at Yuda on Twitter. Right. You'll, you'll get the man himself. Thank you, Judea. Really a pleasure. Thank you, Sam. Yeah. It was a pleasure. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, like my Ask Me Anything episodes, as well as the bonus questions from many of these interviews. You'll also get advanced tickets to my live events. You'll find all of these things and more at samharris.org. And thank you for supporting the show. Listeners like you make it possible.